Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, guys and gals. It's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. We are here with my friend, Paul Sloat. And what I love about Paul is that he trademarked the term the accidental economist. He is a founder of Green Drake Advisors. Um, I I would kind of nickname him maybe the CEO whisperer. He's got a ton of experience in that C-suite level of CEO, chief operating officer, chief marketing officer with private companies, with public companies. Like his financial knowledge is pretty insane. So um, we're recording this at the end of 2021, December of 2021. We're actually ahead of schedule on the podcast schedule. So this will probably release, you know, Q1 2022. But I think one, we'll get some cool prognostications from you and see if they are, they're, they're, they're going correct in the first part of 2022. And then, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the what, what the year looks ahead. So other than the fact that, you know, um, you and your spouse, I think are living in temporary housing right now, because you're building a new home and all construction in America is behind. What did I what did I forget to mention in the 60-second Reader's Digest introduction, Paul? Uh, not much, except that, you know, most of our clients are entrepreneurs who happen to be CEOs of their own companies. And uh, we help them solve a variety of problems, whether it's in their businesses, whether it's dealing with family issues, whether it's dealing with estate issues, whether it's setting up philanthropic enterprises, all kinds of things that they want to do. We're actually helping them to find people they need to grow their businesses. Nice. And, you know, what, why don't we just dive in right there? Because you've, you've worked on both sides of the public and the private sector and then also family-owned versus, you know, private equity-owned. So could you talk a little bit about what your standard kind of entrepreneur that made it that now is the CEO of the family business versus maybe somebody that put you know, took private equity or investor money or angel money, AKA they got a million dollars from somebody to go found their idea. What, what is that dynamic? Cause I know you work with a lot of CEOs. You mentioned, you know, okay. Family so, so firstly, private equity doesn't bother with anything as small as a million bucks. Got it. So <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're not in the business of uh, investing into dreams. They're in the business of investing into companies with cash flow where they can leverage the capital structure to drive returns on the equity side. And so they're looking for a business where either they can improve the margins, uh, they can leverage it up so that they can use the cash flow of the business to pay down the debt over time as the business grows and multiply their returns, or they're looking to do something like consolidate an industry uh, one industry that's sort of being rolled up now is the car wash industry of all industries yeah. where you see a couple of companies have come public and then there's a lot of private money now starting to chase uh, car washes to roll up the industry because that's one of the few still really fragmented industries in the United States. Right. Okay. So uh, what I think you've got going on is the private equity is really looking for companies typically with revenues of $20 million or above. And, and real quick, can you define private equity? Is this like one rich dude who's got two hundred million, or is this? No, no, no. City, I'm talking about this is a fund that might have a hundred million, or two hundred million, or three hundred million dollars in capital. Got it. That's typically either from wealthy individuals or institutionally driven, um, and they'll either and they're looking to put that money to work. And typically, private equity targets returns of 15% compound. So if you were to think about returns, you know, public equities return 9% about over time, if you take long periods of time. 
private equity returns about 15% and venture capital returns at the 25 to 30%. Of course, your risk level goes up as you run through all those different areas, right? Got it. And, and the venture okay, capital is... The, the venture capitals, they're the ones that are investing in the startups and the dreams, right? So they're, they're going to strike out with a bunch of them, and then they're going to have a 1,000% return on one of them. Correct. Because typically what happens with the venture capitalists, they'll invest in 10 entities. They know three of them will go to zero. On maybe another four, they're going to get their money back. And then they're going to get two home runs and one decent return out of the whole thing. And so at the end of the day, they make a very nice return, but they... In the, you know, they, I mean, I've done enough investing to know I make 10 investments. Oftentimes, the one I think that is going to return the most does not do that for a variety of reasons. And so what happens is something always surprises you. Right. Right. And, and so going back to the private equity, I'm just trying to conceptualize this. Is this, um, you know, who is it? Uh, 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 BlackRock? No, BlackRock or Blackstone? Who's the big investor? Blackstone. Blackstone. So like. AKR, Carlisle Group. Those are the typical. Okay. It. And there's an, and by the way, those are just the most well known because they're public. Right. But the real, but there are, you know, hundreds of private equity firms that specialize by vertical. So they will specialize and become experts in an industry, whether it's healthcare, whether it's, uh, you know, manufacturing, whether it's distribution, whether it's food companies, whether it's a variety of things. And typically the reason they do this is because they develop an expertise, they develop a network, and they have an advantage in analyzing these types of companies, Got right? And then driving growth and returns with those types of companies. Got it. So can I give you a real life example of somebody that we might share in common, but I'm not going to use his name just for privacy reasons. I, okay. I I think this was a private equity deal. So this gentleman spent his entire life, his entire career building uh, five auto body shops. Uh, he had five auto body shops around the Southern California area. No intention of selling, good cash flow, great lifestyle for him and his wife. And one day he gets a cold call and the guy's like, hey, I work for ABC company we'd like to buy your five um, auto body shops for a number that he could not believe. And so he's like, yeah, hung up on him, thought it was a scam. They call back, they're like, no, this is not a scam. Can we come down and meet with you? So it turned out that this company had somehow acquired some expertise in the auto body shop industry. And they're like, we're going around the country. Our goal is to buy 500 auto body shops. Yeah, there are two or three. There are two or three firms that are actually rolling up that industry. Got it. And, and their idea is, well, if we can have 500 auto body shops, we've got you know economies of scale. We only need one CEO, one regional manager, instead of all this segmented population of the business. And so I, I have no idea what the numbers are. So I'm just going to guess. Let's say they gave him five million dollars for his five auto body shops. They're going to go repeat that 30 times around the country form them all into one new, you know, Mako type auto body conglomerate. And then hopefully in five or 10 years or maybe sooner with some great management and some economies of scale, private equity is going to turn around and either have that, that company go public or they'll spin it off and sell it for $200 million and they'll make their, you know, 15 to 20% return that they were looking for. Am I, am I conceptualizing what private equity is correctly? Yes. I mean, that's just one version of private equity. But yes, when that particular industry is being rolled up 
across the country. I know that's happening here on the East Coast. It's happening in the Midwest. It's happening on the West Coast. And a variety, you have uh, a number of firms that are trying to do this. And ultimately, what will happen is you're correct. They will take these companies. They will merge them into one. They will get economies of scale in managing the companies and all the IT systems. They're going to get uh, leverage in purchasing because all of a sudden, instead of owning five, you're going to have you know, 50 or 100 auto body shops. So when I go to buy my auto parts from the auto part manufacturers, all of a sudden I become a much bigger client. Right. And I start having leverage over the auto parts manufacturers so I can get a better price on this, okay? Which will then allow me to, you know, have certain leverage with the insurance companies, et cetera, and make better margins. There's a variety of things that will improve their, as you scale the business, it will enable them to improve their, their competitive position. Yeah. And, and, you know, I grew up watching all these movies in the 80s and the 90s, like uh, Wall Street and Richard Gere's uh, uh, character in uh, in uh, Pretty Woman. And it's like the, the 80s style kind of robber barons were like, well, we're going to buy a big company and we're going to break it up into smaller pieces and then make money selling off the smaller pieces. And it seems like the, you know, the, the taste of the decade now is no, no, no. We want to consolidate a bunch of stuff, get these economies of scale, be be the Amazon of the auto body world right, and then sell for profit. Because the valuations in the public market make it very hard for them to meet their return hurdles that they need to meet for their investors. Okay, and that's why they can't do this in the public markets anymore because the valuation is so high in the public markets, they can't make the numbers work. Got it. Got it. So a large institutional investor like like Blackstone, they can't go in and buy the S&P 500 or shares of Tesla or whatnot, because they're just not going to make, you know, unless they're really good stock pickers, which nobody really is, they're, they're not going to, um, no. they're not going to make a, a high enough return. So they got to find other verticals to make money. Yeah, other ways to make money. Interesting. Okay. So um, back to my original question, maybe if we could go, you know, family owned versus private equity, public versus private, like, like, this is an unfair question. What's the best setup if you're setting up a corporation or if you're looking to invest in one? Okay, so here's the thing. Being public requires a certain scale. So most entrepreneurs have private companies and they get to a certain scale with those companies. And oftentimes what happens, and I'll give you this is an actual example out of the stamping industry because this is someone I know. He was CEO of a stamping company. They built it up from nothing to reasonable size. They sold it to a private equity firm. Then they made some acquisitions to increase it. And then eventually they're going to sell this again now that they've grown the firm again. Okay. I sit on the board of a fintech company. The CEO founded a company, built it up from nothing sold it to private equity, stayed on as the CEO. They did some acquisitions, sort of put some companies together, built it up, and they just resold it to another private equity company. Okay. And, and so each time they sold it, they got a much bigger valuation along the way. And so that is the typical mode. Now, the difference is when you have a entrepreneur starting a company, Typically, they're looking for, you know, money. Initially, it's their own money or it's their friend's money, right? And so that works to a point. But you get to a point where you need to scale a company. And if it's not producing the cash flow, because remember, growth consumes cash. 
Growth consumes cash. Yes. Okay. It's a real simple equation. Growth consumes cash. So you have to manage your cash flow well. And if you grow too fast, you outgrow your cash flow and your ability to fund your growth. And depending on the nature of the business and the margins and its ability to throw off cash, you have to manage all that carefully, right? And there's a number of ways that you can improve the cash flow of a business, but at some point you may need outside capital. And that can come either in sort of friends and family if it's a small amount, or if you need more than a small amount, then maybe you go to a family office, maybe you go to some other types of wealthy investors who will write a five, 10, 15, $20 million check to invest in the company and help it to grow and reach the next level. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's typically how it works. And then at a certain point, the entrepreneur has a choice to continue to run the company or to sell it out. Oftentimes, family owned businesses remain private for a long time because the family has no interest in selling. Right. Um, right. Because it's the source of the family's wealth. Yeah, say, or, or they've hit their sweet spot, right? They're like, hey, our family doesn't need to make more than a million dollars a year net. Why, you know, why Why do we want to grow? Why do we want the headache? Like, we've basically just got this cash cow that, that right. fuels our lifestyle. Right. They've got a lifestyle business. It, it produces enough cash to, to fuel what they need, and that's it. And it, it never gets sold at least until somebody's ready to retire. And if the next generation is not there and ready to take over the business, then it will get sold. Right, right. Right. Or what happens is, I'll give you an example, um, uh, which is a true story. A friend of mine from college who I went to college with, her family found an electronics firm. It's private. It's probably one of the largest private electronic firms in the country, in the United States. And it's as big as many public companies. But what happened, that what they did instead, the father founded it and was quite brilliant, came up with a number of patents and all. Uh, the daughter came in and was managing the company, uh, and they brought in professional management to manage the company because it was comparable to a public company. So the budgets and incentives could be there for somebody to earn the same kind of, you know, returns as a you know ceo or coo or cfo of a company of this size as if right. they were part of a public company but it was a private company and what the family did is the stock went into a trust for the benefit of the family so the trust owns the stock for the benefit of the family so the company can remain private interesting you know b because all i see because i don't work in this world obviously all i right. see is the dramatization of this stuff on tv shows like billions and succession and stuff like that you know it's yeah, all but... it's all flamboyant but you know in my mind the c suite of a large company whether they're publicly traded or privately traded is just this you know game of thrones revolving door you know the board bringing in new people but what's the reality on the ground when you have a you know small to medium sized company i'm not talking about ge or amazon or tesla well here's the, the reality on the ground is if the company is doing well the management does not turn typically they're there for a very long time and have a long tenure in the company and that's the reality right because in a private company, the family finds people they feel they can trust that fit the culture of the company. 
and they want to keep them. They don't want them to turn over. And so the reality is in a private company, yes, the private CEO and the family control the company. And the big difference is in a public company, ultimately the public shareholders and the board control the company and the board can fire the CEO of a public company, but the board cannot fire the CEO of a private company. I mean, because basically the family controls the company. Right. And if the board wants to fire the CEO, the CEO just replaces the board. Right. Right. Okay. So this is, it's very different in a private company. So in a private company, which may have a formal board, which is needed for a variety of purposes, right? You still have very different authority of that board versus a public company board. Can you talk about that? Because you said a formal board has a variety of purposes. In my mind, it's like you become somebody who's politically connected or has a great expertise in a particular field, and then Apple pays you a million dollars a year to show up to four meetings and argue with a bunch of other board members and make some decisions for the direction of the company. What does it really mean to have a board seat or be on the board of a company? Well, I've done this. There are two types of board. There's formal boards of directors, okay? Boards of directors have fiduciary liability, okay? So they need to do and make decisions that's in the best interest of the company. Boards of advisors advise the company, but have no liability for the advice. The reality is in a private company, the board of directors typically advises the CEO and the family on the appropriate course of action, but the family and the CEO ultimately make the decision, which is different than in a public company where if the board feels a certain way, they can outvote the CEO and decide what will occur. Nice, nice. And is there like a formal, like you get to this size company, you gotta have three board members, you get to this size company. No, there's no. No formula? There's no formula. Typically, it makes sense to put a board of advisors in for an entrepreneur once they exceed $5 million in revenue. And, or if they exceed, or if they need to raise real money because they're building a company and they need to go out and raise 20 or $25 million, they need to put in a board, maybe a formal board of directors, in order to have the appropriate structure to bring in the outside investors, okay? So a lot depends, right? There's a lot of ways to do it, but typically at some point between five and 10 million, you'll have a board of advisors. At some point between 10 and 20 millions, that board of advisors becomes a formal board of directors because what happens is as companies grow, roles get formalized, right? Accountabilities get formalized and the company's no longer a startup. It's a real company that has to be run with real organization, real process and procedure. And you need all the legal formalities around it to handle things in an appropriate manner. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. And I'm thinking about this for myself because to be clear, this is not where my side hustle business is, but let's just use an anecdotal example. I run a coaching business on the weekends for loan officers and then I'm a loan officer during the week. And so right. let's say, you know, let's say the the coaching business goes from 500 to a million in revenue to like, we're just crushing it. We did some right things. We got a good cult of personality. We get to 2 million. And then I look around and I'm like, you know, 
this could be a $10 million company if I expanded verticals into insurance and real estate. But nobody's gonna give me the money I need to expand and I don't have enough cash flow. So let me get Paul on my board as a CFO. I'll get a top real estate coach, coach on my board as like knowing that thing. I'll basically surround myself with experts and then I can go to a bank or maybe some private investment, smaller version than private equity because I'm only worth two million and say, hey, I really need a million bucks to scale into these different verticals. Um, that could happen. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously downplaying the numbers, but that's kind of the psychology of like you grow, you get past where a single entrepreneur operator could do it. You get to three, four, five, ten million dollars in revenue, and you're like, dude, we need we need some professional help. Yeah, and there's all kinds of ways to do that. You need a board, but you also need the professionals in the company. Got it. Right. So it's two pieces. You got to put the proper organizational structure in place, and you need to have the actual formal board sitting there advising the CEO because the difference of the board, the board is say, gives you a 30,000 foot view of things, right? And the board can see things that the people in the trenches can't see, right? Because they're on the ground fighting the battle, right? And so it's that outside perspective is the whole purpose of the board because the board can not only see things, but it can bring resources to the company that the CEO is not aware exist. Makes sense. Or does not have access to. Makes sense. Yeah, you said something, and, and this is, I, I tend to be right-leaning, libertarian, kind of conservative, hard for me to claim that I'm a Republican these days because both parties, I feel, have been completely bastardized. Um, so I'm definitely more right-leaning. But one of the criticisms I hear about, you know, corporations and evil businesses and stuff from the left, the more liberal progressive wing, kind of resonates with me where it's like, you kind of mentioned once a, a, pub, a company goes public, so it goes from family owned or private equity or whatever to it goes public. And now they're beholden to the stockholders. One of the arguments that I've heard that kind of holds water with me politically is like, well, if you have quarterly earnings reports and the company is public, and it's beholden to the stockholder at that moment in time, does that create some either perverse incentives or maybe some incentives that aren't aligned with long-term growth and profit? Because we got to meet this quarterly earnings. We got to call. We got this. We need to, we need our stock price to stay above this. We got we got to grow or people think we're going to, we're dying. Is, it, is there any? Yeah, I, I, so, so what you have in certain companies is the tenure of the CEO is shorter than the true investment cycle for the company. Interesting. Okay? And that's the role of the board. Because now you've got the, the, the CEO and the officers of the company trying to hit short-term goals, right? In order for their stock options to vest, in order for their, you know, all the different flavors of stock they get. And, and yes, and they will invest and make certain decisions for the short term and it's the board's job to ensure that all those long-term investments that should be made, whether it's in R&D, whether it's in building new facilities, happen, okay? And when the board doesn't do its role, those things don't happen, right? And the management then do, goes out and maybe does major buybacks of stock, right? Because that helps boost the stock price in it over a couple, you know, two, three years, but maybe it's not the right thing to do for a five to eight year time horizon. Right. Okay. And, and so, you know, I look at, so let's take a look at a company like uh, 
Intel, what did Intel do recently? It changed its CEO because the previous CEO had fallen behind on making the right types of investments to make the company be as leading edge as any company in the world has fallen behind uh, Taiwan Semiconductor in terms of leading edge technology. And so what the CEO of Intel is now doing is he significantly, the new CEO with the board's backing, increased the investment into the company to ensure that they catch up with Taiwan Semiconductor. And in the short term, that will hurt the stock price right? Because they have to make this investment. They're not going to be buying back stock or paying additional dividends. They're going to make this big investment. But if you look on a 10-year time horizon, it's the right thing to do to make the investment today to ensure you're competitive tomorrow, right? Right. right. Okay. So you don't don't want to be Kodak and stuck with just film. Right. Right. So Intel is making the investment to stay at the leading edge, right? And so that's very expensive, but it's going to make the investment. And what happens is when a company doesn't make that investment and the board doesn't do the right thing because they're given to short-term share price pressures, that's when you have a problem. Got it. Got it. So would it it be fair to say that in maybe a lot of companies or at least some companies, there's this tension between maybe the CEO – trying to come up with more short-term wins and the board trying to be the wise, you know, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi being like, no, no, we got to think five or 10 years out. Do a lot of companies have that healthy tension of like push and pull and conservative and, and progressive. And like, we, we, we got to grow. We got to grow. We got to grow. No, no, no. We got to invest. We got to invest. Or am I just making stuff up from movies I've seen? You're making stuff up from movies. Okay, perfect. See that this this is why I need these kind of educations. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, All right. So then uh, what happens, um, you know, what happens in the C-suite? Like you've worked in these places, you've you've helped take. I believe you've helped take some some companies public. Like it seems very mysterious to the to the outsider. And you know, I I'm not a religious guy. I find myself having um, arguments in defense of religion. I'm not a CEO. I don't make tens of millions of dollars a year. I find myself having um, arguments in defense of CEOs because they're like, well, you know, the average CEO makes 1,000 times the guy who washes the toilet or whatever. And I'm like, okay, he can make 10,000 times what the dude washing the toilet makes. And do you know how many different regulations there are per state just in the simple law of like paid time off and vacation? Like just trying to manage the beast of having a a branch of your company. He's got thousands of people managing the beast. Yeah, perfect. But- but, but the CEO's job, okay, is the key job that a CEO has, whether it's of a public company or a private company, is to set the strategic direction of the company and decide where to invest the company's capital. That's the key roles the CEO fulfills, right? Because whether it's a private company or a public company, that's their goal. Are we going to stay in the same products and increase our geographies, right? Are we going to add additional product lines? Are we going to move into a new adjacent industry? Are we going to vertically integrate the company, right? All these are strategic decisions 
that have ramifications on a five to 10 year time horizon, if not longer. And making the right decision is critical for the future of the company. Can, can you give me some anecdotal stories, maybe some recent, um, some recent things that we might've seen in the news where maybe a CEO got this right and they had a masterful grasp of what was coming and, and maybe a crash and burn story where a CEO got it wrong? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there, well, let me put it this way. In the last couple of years, because of the massive amount of funds that the government has provided, right, to backstop the economy, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's the French government, the German government, all over the world, the Japanese government, Chilean government, what happened is companies basically got bailed out over the last couple of years because there was all this growth created by government that more than offset the issues due to the pandemic, okay? Except for certain countries where you have, such as Thailand, which is really has a huge portion of GDP related to travel right. and tourism. And so they have an issue, but it but it's out of their government's control. So I think the crash and burn is not there yet, because also you have to remember there's been a huge amount of capital flowing around. Right. Right. Had a huge number of companies come public via SPACs or IPOs at very large valuations. You've had all kinds of capital being thrown at assets, right? And so that also funded companies. And the crash and burn for all these companies is in the future. In two to three years, where companies, let's say, said, we're going to deliver these products and we're going to sell this much of these products and they don't hit those goals, right? And then they have a problem because they've come up short of the goals, right? Whether it's a private company or a public company, now they're gonna to have to explain that. They may have trouble raising more capital. They may not have positive cash flow. So there are all kinds of issues that are going to come up in two to three years, but that's not a today issue because of where we are in the economic cycle. Right, right. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's like kind of everybody's being buoyed by this false sense of security from, you know, 40% of the U.S. dollars being printed in the last, you know, 18 months or whatever it's been, two years almost. Right. I mean, so you've had this, you know, rising tide lifting all boats, right? Right. And some more than others. And so as the Federal Reserve stops adding money, which it will do in the first half of 2022, then starting probably in the second half of next year, second half of 2022, you'll start seeing some of these issues begin to come to the fore. Right. Right. And then um, correct me if I'm wrong, because I have the, you know, economics education of a moron who's read a bunch of books on it. Some good books like Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, which I recommend everybody reads, but I'm, 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 I'm half a moron when this stuff. Um, it, will there be additional pressure because right before we started recording you said hey uh, inflation's not coming inflation is here everything in america is more expensive goods services right. the whole nine yards and, and that and that's if you can get the good or service because there's also a scarcity due to supply chain issues so you know if i'm a pessimist which i am um 
you know, second half of 2022 or Q1 of 2023, is there just this massive convergence of like, ooh, the tide went out, the government stopped spending money, everybody's looking around being like, oh, a gallon of milk, a gallon of gas, uh, a car is 30, 40% more than it used to be. Is that where we start to get the downward spiral of fear, lack of consumer activity, people not buying as much, and then we get a recession or a depression? Well, I don't see that anytime soon, okay? okay? It's way too early for that to happen. Okay. Um, Because next year, there's enough economic impetus. Remember, we got the infrastructure bill passed, right? That'll have an impact the second half of next year. We will get this, some form of this stimulus from the Democrats sometime in probably the first quarter of next year. We'll get something, whatever it is. Not as massive as was initially envisioned, but we'll probably get something. Um, And so that will be stimulus to the economy. And just remember, the Fed hasn't really started being restraining on the economy, right? All they're doing is saying, we're going to stop stimulating things. And so the lag function on, on the Federal Reserve's actions is typically anywhere from six to 12 months, let's say nine months. Got it. So let's say they stop putting money into the economy in March, okay, at the end of March, because that's basically what they said they're going to do. All right. If we go nine months for out, so that means all the stimulus they put in is still going to impact the economy through the end of next year. Yeah. Funny how that always seems to coincide with an election year. Well, it is. Well, I, we can have a discussion about that too, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Because spending by government is correlated to the economic presidential cycle, right? right. It always peaks the year before and the year of a presidential election, and then it pulls back on the government side. Yeah, and, and you can show this over time. It's right. It's funny how that happens. But anyway, so you're going to get the stimulus that's going to carry through the end of next year. And if the Fed raises rates, let's say in May or June next year, right, which everyone expects, that really won't impact the U.S. economy till the first quarter of 2023. Okay. Now, what will start impacting the economy is some of the stimulus money goes away, right? So if you look at the um, stimulus that went into, let's say, the um, healthcare.gov, which is the government, you know, insurance marketplace, right? Um, There were additional subsidies during the pandemic for those premiums. Those subsidies are going away. Right. So consumers are going to get hit with an increase in their premiums next year because the subsidies will be less. Okay. But wait, so, but wait, Paul, the Affordable Health Care Act was supposed to dramatically bring down the cost of overall health care. That's what we were sold eight years ago. No, that's not what it was. <laughs> that's not what the legislation was designed to do. But we that's a whole different. Oh. We don't even have time to have well, that. We'll, we'll, have you on, we'll have you on for a political only podcast. Okay. Uh, If you read the legislation, I didn't read it word for word, but I skimmed it. That is not what the legislation did. Yeah, we know. Okay. The legislation had a big tax increase hidden in the way it was structured and and a variety of other things we can talk about. It's one of the reasons the economy grew so slowly for a number of years after the Affordable Care Act was passed was because it acted actually as a drag on the economy. Yeah. But that's a whole different discussion. We can get into a different time. Um, but you're going to get the stimulus. So really, 
2022 growth for the average CEO, whether public or private, the economy should grow reasonably. Next year, the real issue is going to be there's inflation, right? And think of it as the pig in the python, right? So you had input costs go up, which caused other, you know, prices to go up. So wages are going up now because consumers want to get paid more to make up for the fact that the price of their food has gone up. So, for example, packaged food goods at the supermarket, prices are up about 8% year over year. Okay, now we know that if we go to the actual other goods, they're up more 15, 20% for many items in the supermarket, right? Um, so the consumer wants to get paid more to make up for the fact that especially in a tight labor economy, they're going to walk across the street to the office across the street and say, okay, right, which is trying to grow and need some workers. Well, to get you, we're going to pay you 15% more than you were earning here. And they're going to say, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then all of a, all of a sudden the business that lost that worker now has to go out and replace that worker, right. And pay 15% more than they were paying. So the risk, is with this inflation, whether it's in your input costs or your labor costs, that you could see somewhat of a margin squeeze for businesses, right, at some point next year, as these costs pass through, but you can't necessarily raise your prices enough to offset all the costs that are going up. Right. Right? Right. I mean, and and the simple example of this is, um, take a look at Calmain Foods. Okay, what is Calmain Foods? Calmain Foods is the largest producer of eggs in the country. Okay? And so if you look at what happened to them, basically they couldn't raise egg prices enough to offset their feed costs that went into the chickens that they were raising, right? So they went from making a lot of money to not making any money. So they're like a leading example of what can happen. Right. Now, for other companies, prices went up, but there's a limit to how much they could go up. And you've already seen this have an impact. The actual, for example, volume of packaged foods that have been sold year over year is down almost 2% because consumer wages only went up so much. So what happened? Consumers traded down, right? Or they bought less stuff, right? Because the price of everything went up so much. And their wages didn't go up nearly as much as their food costs or their fuel costs went up in the last year. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, we made uh, just just our small little family. Um, my wife's had the same car for 150,000 miles in seven years or whatever. So we were looking for a new car. We've got two kids and we were looking for something bigger, like a, like a Suburban or a Tahoe or whatnot. We looked for months and all I cared about was getting this one electronics package where it has the adaptive cruise control. So it slows down, it speeds up because we drive back and forth a lot from LA to Vegas. And I was like, I can't do that road anymore. So I go to the car dealership where I'm used to getting like $5,000 off sticker on an American American car and they're like hey man the conversation starts at a five thousand dollar markup and oh by the way that um that feature that you want not available on any cars because we don't have enough microchips to basically make the self-driving feature on it and i'm like oh okay so after four months of looking we needed a new car we finally bought like a used honda pilot for forty thousand dollars i don't know exactly what the money was so 
because of lack of access, because of inflation on the prices, like our family spent forty or $50,000 less than we were planning to because of economic situations completely out of our control. And you multiply that over an entire economy, I've got to imagine that hurts. Well, well, it does have an impact. And the auto chip shortage will be solved by the end of 2022 because there's a lot of capacity coming in the semiconductor industry. And you're, you're probably going to see the start of a downturn in that industry because there's so much capacity being built. But it takes time to actually build a semiconductor fab takes one and a half to two years. And then ramping the capacity once you build the plant takes several quarters. So from start of construction to when it's fully up and running could take two to three years. Right, right. Okay. So you're, you're going to have a lot of capacity that's going to come online. It's going to relieve this starting in the second half of this year. Got it, got it. Unless, of course, they tried to build the factory in California, where because of regulations and zoning, it probably takes 17 years to build it. So, Well, nobody's building plants in California. They're building them in Texas and Arizona and saying thank you very much. In fact, California lost a record number of uh, members of its population to other states this past year. Yeah, I had heard that in the census, and this is just more... More, more fuel to the fire of like how much longer is California? Like everybody loves to move to California, but it seems like right now a lot of people love moving out as well. Well, you have you have net out migration from California right now, so that's one one of the things. So this brings me to my favorite question that I've probably asked a dozen people, and you know the answer I always get is it depends. So let's say inflationary um, forces, the government printing money. Um, you know, we're probably going to have a good 2022 if you have money to invest, whether you're dollar cost averaging it in, you got $100,000 to invest, you just inherited money because grandma died or whatever the case may be. It's like, I'm of two minds, right? Half of me is like, well, ugh, everything feels pretty frothy and pretty expensive. Houses, commodities, crypto, the stock market, like where do I put my money? And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, I got to put my money somewhere because if the value of money is going down five, six, seven, eight percent a year because of inflation and next year my $100,000 might be worth $95,000, I got to deploy the money somewhere. But am I going to deploy it just in time to see a 40% downturn, which then means I got to have 100% upside to just get back to even? Um, it's, it's very confusing. So where in the heck do smart people put their money right now in the beginning of 2022? So here's, here's probably the landscape, okay? The Fed's going to start raising rates in the late part of the second quarter, right? So, so let's look at the big picture, right? The amount of government stimulus is going to be down, but you're still going to get government stimulus in 2022, okay? The real issue over time is that inflation... If we go back to other decades where the Fed's created this much money, right? Inflation over the decade ran anywhere from five and a half percent, for example, in the 1940s. People forget that the Fed created a lot of money to fund the government for World War II and the, right. and the late stages of the Great Depression. And so you had five and a half percent compound inflation over the decade of the 1940s. Okay. 
And then you had a big inflation in the 70s. Why? Because the government needed to inflate away all the debt it took on for the Great Society and the Vietnam War, right? It had a guns and butter policy, right? Now, what's going on? The government took on a lot of debt to fight the pandemic, right? And to fight the recession in 2008, 2009. And so we printed all this money. And as this money begins to circulate now in the 2020s, you're going to get real inflation. Okay. And what is that real inflation? That could look very much like the 70s or the 1940s and be five to six or 7% compound over the decade. Now, what does that mean? Well, you have to think about it. I think it means that ultimately interest rates go up to reflect the reality that inflation is this high. Because if you look at real interest rates, real interest rates are as low as they ever were. They're negative, right? Right. And they're as low as they ever were in the decade of the 1940s or the 1970s. And so real interest rates are probably going to head back towards zero or positive. And if inflation, even if we have an inflation slowdown in 2023, 2024, which we probably will, doesn't mean inflation will go away, but it might go from 6% back to 3, 3.5%, right? But still, let's say to have a positive real interest rate, well, what does the 10-year need to do in 3.5% inflation? Well, the 10-year needs to be worth at least 3.5% interest rate, well above where it is now, right? So what you could have in the markets, so here's the question, do you want to own real assets or paper assets? I think at the end of the day, over the long term, you probably want to own real assets over paper assets. And by real right? assets, you mean gold, silver, art, houses? Uh, yes, gold, silver, maybe not houses right now because that market's very frothy and if mortgage rates go up, you can have a pullback in, in prices in the housing market very easily, right? Right. Because affordability today is as bad as it was at the peak in 2006. That's not talked about a lot, but that's the statistic. Okay. And so, and there are certain signs that the the housing market is beginning to cool. And so I would expect some point in the next 18 months, you will get a pullback in prices. Um, But you're going to want to own real assets over paper assets, right? And the other thing is that you'll have opportunities to buy those real assets in pullbacks, right? And there are always opportunities to advantageously buy in many, many different areas. So for example, I know people are buying rental houses in secondary cities, right? B cities, not A cities, right? Yeah. And their you know, their cash on cash returns are twelve to fifteen percent. So you can invest the money if you know what you're doing and do it right and still make reasonable returns despite the markets being frothing, right? Because there are opportunities if you know what you're doing, always. But you do have to be aware that markets are frothy. Valuations on, let's say, public stocks are such that the projected 10-year return on the S&P 500 is probably close to zero. Yeah. 
But weren't they saying the same thing four years ago, you know, when, when whatever the, the S and P hit 20,000 and now it's at 30,000 or wherever it is today. No, no, no. What were, were there a lot of people that were saying the 10 year return if, you know, when the stock market was about 4% at that point. Got it. Got it. And and then it's just, and then it's just run, run wild the last four or five years, right? Yeah. Because the fed printed lots of money. The money didn't go into the real economy. The money went into paper assets as the real economy gets going, the real economy will then need that money, right? And as the real economy sucks that money out and the Fed raises rates, that'll have an impact on the equity markets. Got it. Got it. So what are okay. some other what are some other real assets versus like paper assets, obviously stocks, bonds, things like that, I'm guessing? Well, what, what uh, we'd other- like, for example, we recommended when gold was back around 12, 1300 to invest in gold. And our ultimate price target for the decade, so remember, this is a decade-long target on gold, is somewhere around $4,000. Okay? So gold's now, I don't know, $1,750, $1,800. It got as high as $2,100. I mean, it could get as low as $1,600. But if I were, you know, if we have any pullback in the market and gold is something you probably want to accumulate over the next couple of years. Okay? You can accumulate other types of real assets, right? Because all these things over time, as this paper circulates, and in fact, one of the interesting things, if you look at central banks around the world, central banks around the world have been accumulating gold because they see that both the European Central Bank and the U.S. Federal Reserve have printed lots of pieces of paper. And ultimately, that those pieces of paper are going to be worth less and gold will make up for it because it's a very interesting uh, statistic. Uh, somebody once told me it's, it's been true for my whole lifetime and I'm now 60. So this has been true is that an ounce of gold will buy a hand tailored suit. Okay. Okay. So if you want to get a hand-tailored suit made of decent quality, you can get one for an ounce of gold. That makes sense because if gold's sitting at seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars $1,800, you get a tailor-made suit. It's about $1,500, right. $1,600. $1,500, right? Yeah. Okay. So when you start thinking about these things, right, you have to think about what are the things that are going to keep real value. Now, the other thing you have to think about, like with the stock market is, okay, over time, Companies will raise prices because of inflation, right? But the issue is if interest rates go up, the multiple on those earnings is going to go down, right? So you may go through a period and what people forget from 2000 to 2012 or 13, the stock market went sideways. Right. Right. So why couldn't the stock market from, let's say, 2022 or 2023, wherever it ultimately peaks, go sideways? For a decade. And then the other piece that you should think about is that commodities probably entered a long term bull market, right? But the commodities that will do well are those related to the areas that are going to grow over time, right? Whether it's solar, whether it's electric vehicles, right? You know, and then things like 3D manufacturing, those, what all those areas suck in is what's going to grow. And those are the commodities you want to own because they're going to have good growth and you're going to need to invest capital 
in order to produce the minerals Right at the end of the day. And then the other thing you have to think about is because the government is imposing carbon taxes on everything, that's going to drive the price of energy up, and that's going to create more inflation because energy goes into everything, right? Right, right. So, so there's many ways to invest. You just have to think broadly, and there'll be opportunities that come along, and you'll be able to take advantage of them. I love it. I don't know if that's helpful, Scott. No, it's super helpful. And like, this is a really good framework to think about things. Um, you know, I've got a friend who's um, probably the most successful private investor I know. He's, he's about your age. And, um, you know, he's just a big fan of missing the drawdowns. And he's like, Correct. You know, there, there's many, many years over the last 30 years where he has underperformed the market. Um, you know, maybe he made 9% instead of 11 or, you know, overall average because he was out maybe the last year or two of a bull market. He missed that last 10, 15, 20% run up, but he also missed the 40% drawdowns. And, and I know from talking with him, um, some of the biggest scores that he's had is like when uh, Berkshire Hathaway was way overvalued or undervalued or when correct. oil was much too expensive. Is, by the way, he is 100% correct. You want to miss the big drawdowns. In 99, 2000, I was running uh, institutional money at that point. Uh, we had a couple billion in assets, but we our drawdown was maybe 16%. Yeah, when the market was what, 45? Yeah, when the market was 45. Okay. And so, right. And then in 2000, uh, 01, 02, my drawdown was about 14% when, right, the market got crushed. So each time in an 08, 09, my drawdown was 13.5%, and the market was down, what, 50%? Yeah, or more. And, or more, right? And so it's those kinds of things, or even in this latest bear market, I don't, I'm not really running money for people anymore. We have a retainer base business i will do it if people ask but we have, we were basically out of the market in late 2019 because we said there's a recession coming in the next two years we didn't know when it was going to come and but we knew there'd be a 35 percent drawdown in the market whenever it happened right which is your classic bear market well guess what we were pretty much out of the market at the end of 2019 okay so we gave up the beginning of 2020 and then all of a sudden march 2020 the market falls apart and because of the pandemic and guess what we can deploy money in april right and then ride the whole thing back up right right, right. so you can you know it's really avoiding those major drawdowns and so we expect at some point this year right there's going to be a correction but we don't see a bear market okay got it so those are the kinds of things, but I agree with your investor friend who's been very successful. If you avoid the big drawdowns, you don't have to make capital back because if you have a 35% drawdown, right, you have 65% of your original money. And in order to get back to break even, right, you've got to make 35% on 65% or you've got to make 57%, right? Right. If I did my math in my head. Close enough. Close enough, okay. But if you have a 13% drawdown, you got to make 15%. Right. And your typical bounce after a bear market is, you know, 
30, you know, if you choose, if you choose appropriate things, let's say the average S&P is 25 to 30%, you can earn 35 or 40% going up. And if you give up, let's say 12 or 13%, and you only need to make 15% to get back to break even, all of a sudden you're ahead 25, 20 to 25%, right? And so to me, that's really how the math works, right? It's avoid the big drawdowns because that's what destroys long-term performance. I love it. I love it. And I know we want to keep this a little bit short because I think we're going to have you on a couple times during the year as economic things develop. That would be awesome. Um, And maybe we'll just do one where we just ran about politics because I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, we could have a long discussion on politics. Very long. So uh, two closing questions because it's a a good get to know people. One, what's your favorite movie and why? Oh, my favorite movie? I think my favorite movie uh, in my head is the original Star Wars. Perfect. And why? Okay. Why? Because when it came out, it was so different and new and groundbreaking in the way it was and the way they portrayed the characters. Now, remember, it's been edited and they changed some things in the movie. For example, one of the things which people like me don't like is uh, they changed the fact that, you know, Han Solo shot the guy first. Han right? shot In first. I had that t-shirt. Han shot first. Right. Han shot first. And when they re-edited the movie, they took that out and had him shoot second. Right? At, which was ridiculous. Right? And because it was all about his character. Right. right? Right. Right. But so what I liked about that movie, it was about the people. And there happened to be some big story background, but it was really about the people. I love it. I love it. And then other than moving into your house at some point in 2022 when their construction is done, um, what what are you most looking forward to? You know, we're getting some positive news right now that Omicron um, is much more contagious, but much less fatal and much less dangerous, which means maybe the new viral load that's taking over could get us back to normal real quick because it's not as dangerous as Delta, the original, you know, assuming we turn the corner on this, on this pandemic from the last two years what are you looking forward to getting back to in 2022 well even more of a normal life right because for example i mean i haven't stopped going to restaurants the last two and a half years i'm probably the odd duck right um i managed to get away for two months both summers the last two summers nice okay to Europe, and so we went to Europe for two months this past summer, and I was uh, in uh, Turkey the prior summer for two months, and two and a half months actually. So, to me, to get things even more normal, I've had a number of speaking events where I'm the keynote speaker canceled because yeah. of this fear of of the virus, and I'm like, and if you look at the data, the virus should be treated like the flu, right? Right. At this point, right. We don't close things because there's a flu going around. Right. Right. And so and that's a whole different discussion. But I look forward to actually not having my speaking engagements not canceled and turned into Zoom meetings. Yeah. And getting up in front of a live audience of two, three hundred people and giving a keynote. 
We've got to, We've got to get the accidental economist back on stage and share you the knowledge. It. So um, I, I would love to have you back on the show during 2022. And if for whatever reason, one of these keynotes finds you in, you know, Arizona, Nevada, California, somewhere California. where I can drive to, I would, I would love to come check it out. And, you know, um, I'll, I'll be your roadie or something. I'll carry your briefcase. Well, that sounds great, Scott. All right. Thanks for being on, Paul. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Talk soon.